Let's start with our reading. Um, A reading today is going to be from Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. And that would be in page 1140 in our Bible. So it's chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the God of uh, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord at, um, at last, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So let's pray and uh, just present ourselves before God together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's your revealed will, will to us and it's contained your truth. We thank you, Lord, that it's a living word and that your spirit brings it to us and teaches us from us, that you renew our minds, that you stir our hearts, that you bring us before you. And Lord, we ask that your word would truly speak to us today and that your message would be loud and clear and that your will for us would be obvious and that, Lord, that this time would be a blessing as we explore what you say in Paul's words, but, Lord, that it would draw us close to you. And we really do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Merry Christmas to everyone. I hope you had a great time. I know we did as a family. And uh, in Christmas, of course, it's traditional that there is a Christmas tree and things like that, and piles of gifts that um, sit underneath it, and a great time of unwrapping and discovery, of course. And it sort of raises the question, um, well, it raises a question for me about who do we give gifts to at Christmas? And also, why do we give them? What's the point of these gifts? And it it can be a real challenge, can't it, Um, as to who deserves a gift from you and who doesn't. Well, let's face it, we don't just give gifts to anyone. There's a purpose for it. And if you think about it, why do you give gifts to the people that you do? You see, gifts are a sign of something, aren't they? They are definitely a sign of connection with someone. And generally, the type of gift you give indicates the sort of connection you have with them. Right? If anyone's familiar with Big Bang, there was a, a, a great scene in a Christmas one there where they struggled with this idea of, reciprocating gifts and what value gifts you should give. But it shows things like you're a colleague with someone or it perhaps shows friendship 
or perhaps shows family. It might indicate love. It, but it definitely does indicate relationship, doesn't it? So gift giving indicates that there's some sort of relationship between the giver and the receiver in it. And at Christmas, there's a particular reason why we've gone for that particular way of celebrating. And of course, what it does is it's a way of reflecting the very great gift that we got that started Christmas off. It's a way of showing through our love of other people and giving something, mirroring in some ways that great gift of love of Jesus coming to earth to start the salvation plan. And so it's become a tradition for us. It was a, a way of understanding God's empathy for us and passing that on, if you like. And the truth is, is that generally in our society, gift-giving demands a response, doesn't it? It's considered fairly rude if you get a gift to say thank you and disappear off into the night and not give something back. It might just be a thank you. It may be that you give a gift back. It may be that you do something for the person. And one of the traditions in various types of gifting we have, of course, is well, not so much now, but a thank you letter might be appropriate, particularly around things like weddings or engagements or things like that. We give, we send notes to show our appreciation. And the book we just read from, what is commonly called a book, the Book of Philippians, is in fact a book that seems to be motivated as a thank you in response to a gift from a church to Paul. The letter was written to the Church of Philippi, of course, and that was a church that Paul had established in one of his missionary journeys. And it seems that they had become reasonably close, or particularly close. And so the motivation for this letter seems to be, and we'll explore that later, the, this, um, this receiving a gift, among other things, because the letter doesn't just say thank you, but it in fact morphs into more or less a missionary letter. And in this missionary letter, Paul has an opportunity to write back to this supporting church and talk about some things that are important to him. And the first one of the things you see scattered throughout this uh, letter is that Paul has some news he wants to tell. For the start, he talks about what has happened to him. And he says, you know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so he's informing this church, of course, his current situation is that, yes, I am still in prison. In fact, he goes on to say that his situation could be quite dire, but he is bringing them up to date. He also says that, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So he wants to send his entrusted helper, Timothy, to that church, and he's informing them to expect this visit. And obviously he hopes that Timothy's going to come back again with some good news. And he also says in it, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now obviously there's a lot in this letter that we could look at and it's going to take more, would take more than the 15 minutes I've been allowed by my son to talk. But in this particular letter, there was a circumstance where someone had come from Philippi, they'd received news he'd been unwell, he'd got better and Paul's sending him back so that he encouraged him. So there was news in there. Paul also wants to send encouragement back to the church. So despite his own circumstances, he wants them to feel encouraged in their walking God. 
And he starts off by saying, I thank my God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you. And just an aside, I think it's a lovely thing, isn't it, that when we know of other churches, to have that chance to say, thank you, God, for your people gathering in this place and being your people. And Paul does that to encourage. He also says, therefore, my beloved, notice that word, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And another place says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And Paul is a real encourager of his churches, and you see this in this letter. He also spends time giving thanks, and there's some verses there. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now, at length, I have received your con- uh, you have revived your concern for me. And it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And Paul obviously has strong connection with these people and they're a generous people. The church at Philippi did have struggles and they weren't a rich church necessarily. And you can read about that in other parts of the Bible, but they gave what they had to support Paul and his work and did so generously and willingly. And of course, he wrote the letter to give thanks. But when he wrote this letter, and he did give thanks in various places, and particularly at the end, we're going to read some more, he does give a strange response in one part. And it's a response that to our modern ears might sound a little ungrateful. Because what he basically does is he says to the Philippians, and we'll come to the passage, he says to them, I really thank you for your gift and I thank you that you've taken the opportunity to send me, but I don't really need it, which doesn't sound too nice. And in fact, it's a little bit like what happened to our family last year where we got some beautiful Christmas gifts and I think it was Simon who got these. Every time he opened a gift, he'd seem to open up and say, oh, well, that's a lovely book, I've already got it. This is a lovely DVD. No, got that one too. Went up with this pile of returns because these gifts, although well thought, he already had. He he was grateful, obviously, but they weren't much use to him. And in some ways, Paul sounds like he's saying that back to the Philippians, as we'll discover. But Paul was in need, and a real need. We can read what was happening to him in Acts 28, as it summarises where he is towards the end of that book. And it says this. And so he came to Rome... And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the four Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took encouragement. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And then it goes on. And the end part is important because it says, Yet it was discovered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. That's the Roman authorities because there's no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. You see, Paul's circumstance was he'd been through a series of trials over a number of years, and he eventually got to the point where accusations were being made where they wanted the death penalty applied to him, and the authorities were willing to release him, but Paul found himself in a desperate strait, and he thought the only way he was going to escape and actually plead his case in a real way was to take his right as a Roman citizen and appeal to Caesar. And as a result, 
he had been taken and transported to Rome and ended up, at least for some time, under house arrest with an imperial guard watching after him. There's some scholarly discussion about the book of Philippi and where it sits in all this and how it works, but there's no doubt that it was an imprisonment letter, that Paul was in prison. And there's some question about whether it's house arrest or whether he's in another form of place, but whatever it was, he was under arrest and he had to meet his own needs in that place. No job, you know, you can't work when you're under arrest, obviously. A difficult circumstance, and so he had need of support. And so the gift from the Philippians was totally appropriate for his needs at that time. And yet, Paul says this in his letter, You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. And then later on he said this, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You see, the letter's not only a letter of thanks for the gift and not only a letter of encouragement and news, but like all Paul's letters, he takes an opportunity to teach and receiving the gift for Paul becomes a teachable moment for the church that sent the gift. And so what he's really grateful, he raises a really, really pivotal fundamental and deep question and it's one that I really want to explore today and it's that idea about what is important in life where do we find contentment and satisfaction how is it that we can live a life where we feel full and not disappointed and it's an important thing to explore in this age too often in our society and obviously in Paul's society there are a few things that people thought were central to having a life that was meaningful And he reflects on them in his response there. They talk about things like fame, wealth and well-being. That's the other three ways you could put it. Fame, wealth and well-being. And Paul says, I've learned that those things don't really matter, but I can be content even where they're absent or even where they're present. They're immaterial. And we're going to explore that idea. By the way, who's famous here? No? Rich? No? None of that? You see, if they were the things that made life satisfying and fulfilling, most of us would miss out. So there's got to be something more there. The first thing that Paul actually says to us is when he talks about being brought low. Now, that could reflect to the fact that one of the things that people think are necessary for a contented life is to have a position, to be well thought of, to have a reputation that upholds you and looks good amongst other people. And in fact, one of the things that we do know is that everyone needs friends and family and we do like admiration and we do like to think that we're well thought of. And that's important, that's okay. And what we also know, of course, is that Paul had position in society. Paul was an upcoming, important young man. He was a man who had a big future in Jewish society and Acts um, really reflects this. Because of my poor eyesight, I'm just going to go to my notes to read it. So in one of Paul's addresses in Acts, he talks about his past and he says this. When they heard that he was addressing Paul, them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a famous teacher at the time. There are two famous schools of Pharisees. Paul was in one of them. 
according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, that's the Christian church that was founding, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. Paul had enough status to be admitted into the ruling council with the elders and the Pharisees. He is recognised as a zealous young man. He had status in his society. And of course, he was also a Roman citizen, something that other Romans were surprised by because that meant he had status. And yet, in Philippians 3, earlier in the book, he says this, talking about his own situation. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under law, blameless. Now don't forget, the Pharisees were a group of people that the disciples, when um, Jesus talked about them, the disciples said, you can't insult these guys. And the disciples said, if they can't get to heaven, who possibly could? The Pharisees were seen as the holiest of people, the most righteous of people, the people who were upright in society. And Paul was one of these people. And yet he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, there's been lots of talk about that passage, obviously. And it's well known that that thing that he says, I count them as rubbish, is actually a stronger word than rubbish. And what he's trying to say is those things that he once held so dearly, he now finds repulsive. They actually are things he would run from now. And yes, this passage is actually talking about legalism and other things, but in essence it's shown that this is a man who had and could give it away because that was not going to bring him to contentment in life. That was important to him. So his position was not what counts. The other thing that people often talk about contentment is our circumstances. Am I having a happy day? Uh, I can tell you that well-being and happiness is a big conversation in our society today. And people really seek to have nice days. We lavish ourselves with good food. We go out and have the cafe experience. We look for restaurants. We look for the best holiday. We travel overseas. We try and fill our days with good things, don't we, to make it a satisfying life. But we also know that circumstances change and that in every life there's going to be good and bad, isn't there? And Paul says, I know how not to worry whatever is going on. Now, don't forget, this is a guy who's in prison who doesn't know what his future is going to be, who may be up for the death penalty, and he's saying, I don't have to worry. Why? Romans 8.28 is a great clue to this, and it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of the hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, I'm written, for your sake we've been killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The passage that I just read was written by Paul and of course it announces that for those God loves, God always does good for them. And then it says the most extraordinary things. If you're going to list all the good God does for you in a praise service, I doubt you'd start talking about persecution, tribulation, fires, flood, famine, chased around, courts, all that, would you? That's not the way you sell God's love to someone. And yet Paul says, any of these circumstances do not diminish or take away the fact that God loves us and loves us deeply to the point where he gave up his very own son to bring us into relationship with him. And that that love won't be diminished, broken, taken away or extinguished by any of these circumstances at all. It is still there regardless of what's going on. And it's the foundation of what keeps you going, knowing that God is in behind it, looking after us and taking us somewhere. And that is the basis of Paul's prayer in Philippians, where he says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. Notice what it doesn't promise. There is no promise from God here that praying is going to take away the problem. But there is a definite promise in there that by praying to God with thanksgiving, that the problem, our thinking of it, our filtering of it, our approach to it will change. Now, the language in this was actually stolen out of um, a religious cult at the time called the Stoics. And what the Stoics did basically, they said, the way that you'd be a real man in life is you'd be strong. So whatever comes along, you grit your teeth, you take it on, and you just don't show emotion because emotion's bad, right? That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not about us being strong in ourselves and holding on and hoping to get through. It's not fatalism. It's not, oh, whatever happens, happens, and I'll just put up with it. It's not that either. And it's not putting God to the test. I don't know where Alison's gone. We had a, we had a, she's gone out. Oh, she can hear me probably. It's not putting God to the test of the um, set where you... She was with a friend one day driving along. This friend's a bit of a maniac driver behind a truck. The truck was going too slow. And she said, right, Alison, pray. We have to go past. She closed her eyes, crossed her fingers, pulled out. This was up a hill, passing a truck that was already doing 80. It was completely blind. It was, pray that we get through this. (laughs) That's not faith the way it's supposed to work here. right? Definitely not. Instead, what it does, it brings a different lens. It's where we can say things like, I work in partnership with God. I take responsibility for the stuff he's going to be responsible for and Paul talks about that in other places. I do my very best, but I understand that what I'm doing is living the life God's given me in the circumstances God has placed me in and what I can't control, I can trust God will do good in. Even if it doesn't seem nice, it nonetheless is God's path through this. If we're going to be persecuted, we're told that's okay if we're um, being persecuted for being good, for having been upright and Christian. We know that Paul suffered illness and prayed about it and God said, that's, your, that's to remind you that you're human. Keep on with it. We know that in so many places, the prophets would question God's position and God says, I am working 
just trust. You'll see it through and I'll be there at the end. You see, this is a prayer of understanding who's actually in control, who knows the circumstances and who knows the end and working with that in partnership. It's, it's a prayer that does bring peace. It's a prayer that stops road rage, by the way, because when you get stuck behind the farmer with the hat doing 20 when you've got a big meeting on and there's no way past because there's a tractor in front of him and a few trucks, it's the one we can say, God knows these circumstances, I'll trust him with them and I'll just be responsible behind it. You know, Even in the small things, it's there. And, of course, the last thing is learning to live with the resources we have. You know, there's plenty of research that shows that if you have an income between certain amounts, you are happier. I acknowledge that. I think it's between about 40 and 80,000 Australian. Funny enough, when you earn mega money, your happiness drops off. Um, I don't know why the research shows that, but it is a real thing. To Paul and to God, the amount of food we have and the amount of money we have is really an irrelevant issue. You know, it's funny. There's a funny idea in there that says that if God loves us, he's going to bless us the way he blesses with lots of things. It's a really funny idea out there because if you think about it, Abraham and David were blessed with riches, right? But you think about John the Baptist and Jesus, and they had very little. Does that mean John and Jesus were less loved by God than David and Abraham? No. You see... The amount of wealth we have is irrelevant to our stance with God. And Jesus, in fact, had warned about relying upon wealth when he talked about the rich farmer and the silos. And he said, you know, tonight an account would be made for your life when the farmer said, I'm just going to sit back and relax and enjoy life. And Jesus said, no, you'll have to have an account for God for what you've done with your wealth. So our position, our acceptance, our circumstances and our wealth are not what is going to, at the end of life, bring us contentment and make life worth the living. God doesn't judge us on our bank balance. He really doesn't. But Paul does make it clear that at the end of the day, it's the surpassing greatness of a deep relationship with Jesus, which is going to count to make life worthwhile or not worthwhile. When people come to the end of their days and I'm getting a bit older and start thinking about this. When people get to the end of their days and start counting what was worthwhile, what's going to be important when we evaluate our time on earth? It's not going to be the money, the food and that stuff. Because at the end end of the day, we leave it all behind, don't we? It's not there with us anymore. They're nice to have, but Paul simply says that a genuine, deep encounter with God changes lives And that change becomes everything. And that relationship with Jesus, when we filter life through our relationship with Jesus, then all those other things become less important and real life starts. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now test and discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, quite simply, a real encounter with God changes the way we think. It changes our hearts. It changes the way we evaluate the world. It changes our purpose and our drives. And it redirects us to find what life is really about. It puts all those things into perspective. You see, 
when we understand that life is a gift from God and every breath I have is a gift from God and every moment I have is a gift from God and he gives it to me for joy and to give back to him and to other people and to use for his glory and his ways, then contentment can be really found and life can have a meaning and a purpose that is actually makes sense. And so Paul reminds the Philippians and us that contentment in life is not about things, it's not about others, it's not about circumstances, it's about Christ, knowing him, loving him, centering on him, foundationally on him, following him, trusting him. And you know what? He'll never abandon us or leave us because we have a great hope and that's the one Aaron talks about, the hope of heaven. And whatever we face now, is insignificant compared to what we promised in that relationship in the end. And that's a real encouragement. So let's pray. This is a great time to pray. Father, we do thank you that life is a gift and it's a gift from you. And I do thank you that gift has purpose in Jesus. And I do thank you, Lord, that you reveal your son in your word and through people. And Father, we know there are lots of people in our town and community who need Jesus. And Lord, you know it's our purpose to bring your gospel and your light into this town. And we ask, Lord, that you would work through us and your churches and that people would find real meaning in life in Jesus. But Lord, for us, encourage us and grow us, strengthen us and direct us. And let us really, Lord, have the deepest and richest and most personal lives we can in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.